0: Uh, a few weeks ago, I was watching a television program. Actually, I was watching an advertisement for a television program. I didn't see the television program, but the television program was fiction. It was a thriller of some sort. I didn't see the show. It's certainly not the kind of show I'm inclined to watch. But I got the premise from the advertisement. Um, I knew what was happening just from the ad. Um, two parents um, had hired a clairvoyant. To help, because they'd noticed something. Whenever they took a photograph of their son, in the background was something spooky. It was a shadowy figure, like a veiled old woman, all dressed in black. And the parents said, at first we thought it was just a fault with the camera, but you'll see the same things in all of the photos. And in the photos, you see this figure in the background get closer and closer to the boy and stretch out a horrible, gnarled hand, contorted as though uh, to grab the boy. And it was really, really spooky. That's probably why I didn't see the program. And it's really spooky because it, it provokes a, prime, a primeval fear that we are at the mercy of such hellish forces. And there is little we can do about it. This is the type of fear that might indeed drive a parent to say, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And we would feel sorry for them, for we too know that fear that our lives are at the mercy of evil forces that are way too powerful for us to deal with. Well, that was a fictional program, but today we look at a miracle that really happened, a miracle from Mark's Gospel. Over the past few weeks, as we've looked at miracles in Mark's Gospel, we've seen how miracles are actually an amazingly articulate form of communication. Miracles tell us so much, it's miraculous. So this week we're going to look at Jesus casting out a deaf-mute demon from a boy. The passage uh, that we've just heard read, Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 29, uh, if you'd like to follow along. But before we begin looking at that passage in detail, I want to anticipate a common objection, uh, an objection which might be, I guess, put in the following way. Um, somebody, someone might say, hey, I don't believe in demons. I get why they might have believed in them in the past in a pre-scientific age, but this child clearly has epilepsy. Labeling a child who is sick, who has a neurological condition, uh, labeling such a child as demon-possessed is surely antiquated, backward, and probably abusive. Well, granted, demonization is not something that has anything like general acceptance in the Western world. In fact, its repudiation as having any basis in reality is widespread in the Western world, and that's mirrored in many quarters in the Western church. But just to be clear, I believe in the existence of demons, things that are occasionally referred to as unclean spirits. And I understand, though, that this might be a little bit of a shock to some who are listening to me. But the the Bible shows us that we are wrong if we think that the material or physical universe is all that that is. And just as God has made all kinds of material or physical creatures, so too he has made all kinds of spiritual beings who aren't material or physical. Angels, demons, spirits, unclean spirits. Some of these serve God and some are in rebellion to God. And whether or not they are in rebellion or obedience, some are big and powerful, whereas others are small and weak. But all of them have authority in one form or another. Also, granted, look, sure, fine, yet the relationship between spiritual demonization and physical or mental illness is mysterious. The Bible recognizes, excuse me, the Bible recognizes three different categories of disease physical, mental, and spiritual. These three forms of illness are not the same. The Bible does not confuse mental illness with demonization. They're not the same thing in the Bible. However, in a way that is quite alien to us, the Bible sees these categories as overlapping the physical, mental, and spiritual, all influencing each other all of the time. Uh, this is true, but it provokes questions that I can't answer. One thing I would like to say, however, is that there's no such thing as demon possession. Um, you've got it in the title there in the, 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 the book, um, the Pew Bible, Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. And again in verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed. You can't be demon-possessed. Uh, you can be demonized or you can have a demon, just like you have a cold. Um, but that's the way it's found in the Greek. You can't be demon-possessed, but you can possess a demon. Uh, and that's. I'm not sure where the language of demon-possession came from and how it entered into our vernacular but it's not in the older English translations such as the King James and the authorised version. So you can't be demon possessed but you can possess a demon and in this story a boy does. So then Jesus and his disciples they go around they heal every sickness, illness, disease and disability, physical healing They also drove out demons, something else entirely. And yet there is overlap, isn't there? A crippled woman in one place who is clearly crippled is yet described as being demonized. And a woman who has a fever is healed when the fever is rebuked, as though it was a spirit. Well, in all of this, what we must remember first and foremost is that the Bible's interest is in spiritual things. So it will always focus on the spiritual side of things. Therefore, in this story, I do know that the boy was demonized. I I don't know whether or not he had epilepsy. He might have had epilepsy, I don't know. If you brought me a child with epilepsy, I would know that that child has epilepsy. I wouldn't know whether or not that child had a demon, and I wouldn't know unless it was revealed to me by Jesus. The two things are different, relating to different realms, the physical and the spiritual, and they might or might not overlap. Well, in all of this, deliverance ministry continues to be a normal part of a pastor's work. Um, it is really the bulk of what we do, uh, but equally it is rare that it never arises Uh, Now, I do not know how the spiritual ecosystem works, but I do know that unclean spirits, if and when they can intrude on human beings, they love to torment, and in tormenting, they gain power. That's kind of how, how the ecosystem works. Their game is domination with a view to destruction. And they gain power from tormenting. In... Uh, Mark's Gospel, what the story begins with Jesus, Peter, James and John. They're descending from the mountain in order to rejoin the other disciples. And they find themselves descending into a crowd and into an argument. The other disciples were arguing with the scribes or the teachers of the law. And it's an unpleasant scene and probably particularly unpleasant for Peter, James and John. It's a rude re-entry into everyday ministry after their wonderful mountaintop experience. That begins that chapter. Well, a father had asked Jesus' disciples to cast a demon from a demonized boy, and when they failed to make any progress, this undoubtedly brought ridicule from the scribes and probably a nasty dispute as to whether Jesus was Savior or fraud. The, the, the public failure of Christian ministry is, is humiliating. It's always humiliating, and there are always people there ready and waiting to take advantage of it. We then hear about the demon itself, referred to in verse 17 as literally a spirit of speechlessness and addressed by Jesus in verse 25 as a deaf and mute spirit. Uh, Most unclean uh, spirits dominate thinking and feeling. Um, So-called demonic strongholds in people's minds thoughts and feelings being a very good way of manipulating and destroying human beings. That this spirit manifests itself in such an overtly physical way means that it is a very powerful spirit indeed. But actually it's not the spirit that's primarily in view here. Neither is it the boy, neither is it the father actually for that matter. What's actually in view is faith or belief. For the father... Complains and he complains to Jesus and he says, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. And it is a complaint. At this stage in Mark's story, we know that the disciples are well practiced in casting out demons. They know that they've been commanded to by Jesus and they know that they have the authority to do it and since chapter 6, they've been seeing deliverance ministry in the name of Jesus under their own They're ministry wise, they they can do it. They're well practiced at it. Well, how will Jesus respond to the complaint? Well, actually, he responds to the complaint with rebuke. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus is rebuking everybody. The you is the plural. And the phrase unbelieving generation shows us that this isn't just a direct reply to the Father, nor even just to the disciples in the Father, but rather to all of them. Father, disciples, teachers of the law, the crowd, this rebuke censures them all. And it must have been difficult to hear. Difficult for the dad to hear. I mean, he just wanted his boy healed. And wherever Jesus goes, he attracts large crowds because, as Mark, our narrator has been at pains to point out along the way, Jesus heals every sickness, all diseases, every disability, and casts out all demons. What? Is this suddenly going to be the the first one that doesn't work? Um, Frustrating. How how painful. This must have been difficult for the disciples to hear. Since chapter 6, they've seen many people healed and delivered by way of their own ministry, healing and casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Their failure here would have been baffling as well as galling. And I can imagine some of them at least thinking to themselves, hey, 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 we're we're doing the best that we can here. But the rebuke tells us some very important things about Jesus. In fact, it tells us two really important things about Jesus. Um, Jesus places himself in radical contrast with the rest of humanity. He is other. And his words only make sense. Jesus is only speaking with integrity if two things are true about Jesus. Firstly, in order for Jesus to be able to say this, he himself must be a sinless human being. Because actually, with respect to the rest of us, the dad in this story speaks articulately on our behalf later on in the story when he says, I do believe, please help me with my unbelief. Because that's where we're all at. This is us. Perhaps separated to some, perhaps separated by degree, perhaps, but not in kind. We all struggle with unbelief. Unbelief is that deep, down, stubborn inability to believe what God has to say. And we all struggle to believe what God has has to say. And even when we know that something is true, even when we, we know it as a deep and profound conviction, we can still fail to feel it or to apply it universally to every aspect of our lives or to live it every single day of our lives. But Jesus is claiming not to be like this. There is no unbelief in him. None. He knows God's word. He believes it, head and heart. He applies it universally and always. Jesus can't judge the rest of us, which is exactly what he's just done, unless he is sinless. He's either sinless or a hypocrite. Praise God, he's sinless. Jesus actually is sinless. He is a sinless human being. And it will turn out that this happens to be of immense significance and importance to your welfare and mine. It's really good news that he's sinless. The second thing that these words show us is that he is God. Because the perspective that he takes is the perspective, the position that he takes is the position of God re-humanity. God, re God as the husband of Israel. Uh, the whole of the Old Testament pretty much can be summarized by these words. You unbelieving generation, how long must I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Um, that's what Psalm 78 is all about. Um, the extraordinary patience of God in the face of unbelief, but yet nevertheless how that patience is severely tried by unbelief. And if you have any trouble understanding me on this point, read about Noah and the flood. Read about Moses and his ministry in the wilderness. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., etc. Unbelief is distressing to God. It tries his patience unbelief well when we fail to fail or refuse to believe him about himself or about anything at all in order that we might hold on to our own point of view we're calling him a liar unbelief is blasphemy because god is not a liar everything he says is true all of the time he is truth furthermore it's not just blasphemy unbelief is distressing to god because it leads to us being damaged, not him. He's not diminished by it, but we are. In fact, we're destroyed by it. That's why it distresses him. Unbelief, destroy, we, with unbelief, we destroy ourselves. We destroy our lives. We destroy our relationships. We destroy our home. We destroy our planet by way of unbelief. Um, spiritually speaking, unbelief puts Satan in charge. And Satan's agenda is domination unto destruction. Well, on that day, unbelief in ministry had led to ministry failure. And uh, it was a public failure. And it was in the name of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' reputation is, is damaged by what's happened. And that was deeply distressing to Jesus. Because actually Jesus is not a liar we see here that jesus is patient but his patience is being severely tested so then two astonishing things about jesus he is a sinless human being and he is god with us these are extraordinary claims and they're going to need extraordinary proof which is what we're about to get so let's move on but before we move on let's notice that even ju- even though jesus's rebuke is a judgment It's not a rejection. He adds to it quickly, bring the boy to me. It's a judgment, but it's not a rejection. Verse 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it is often thrown him into fire or or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Well, I guess the thing that strikes me instantly uh, about that is, uh, boy, the authority. uh, The authority of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, I command you. I command you. Jesus has authority over spiritual realms. Last week we saw how Jesus has authority over impersonal evil. Uh, The chance, chaotic randomness, dangerous, accidental aspect of life. Jesus reigns over it. He's sovereign over it, treading upon the seas. This week we see how Jesus has authority over personal, spiritual evil. Satan and his minions. Here is one who can cast out Satan because he can cast out Satan's messenger. How can Jesus do that? Well, actually... Any human being should be able to do precisely this because all human beings have been created in the image and likeness of God. They are God's representatives and God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. We should all, in theory, have precisely this same authority. The problem is we gave that authority away When in the garden we swapped it for a piece of fruit. Why did we do something that stupid? Because of unbelief. We didn't believe what God had to say about that tree and that piece of fruit. Jesus can do this. I command you. Because he is a sinless human being. He wasn't a part of that deal. And as such, as a sinless human being, now in the perfect image and likeness of God, he shows us exactly what God is like. Because Jesus is God with us. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Um, Those last few words um, strike most people as mysterious. And what commentators uh, invariably do is they interpret it through the lens of their own experience, uh, which is precisely what I'm about to do, uh, just so you know. But look, as far as I'm concerned, if this unusually powerful demon can only be excised by way of prayer, then prayer must have happened, right? I mean, prayer's happened. Somewhere in verses 14 to 29, there was a prayer. The question is, did we spot the prayer? Well, let's look again. I'm going to search in verses 21 to 24. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Now, you've got to register that Jesus never asks a question out of idle curiosity. This isn't a good time to take a history. Now there's a boy in enormous distress on the ground here, this is not a good time to say, what an interesting scientific phenomenon. Why don't we gather some information? Uh, this isn't idle curiosity. Jesus is leading the witness. This is a conversation that's going to happen because it needs to happen. It has to happen. It's important that it happens. Jesus is leading the witness, so to speak, and his motive is compassionate love. From childhood, the father answered, "It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Now, if this child has been demonized since infancy or since birth, then the open door for that demon to come into the child's life was made not by the child, but rather by someone who had spiritual authority over the child, such as a parent or a grandparent, such as a father. Now, I'm not saying that every single unbelieving decision leads to demonization, just as I can't say that one single cigarette leads to cancer. But just as cigarettes put you in physical danger, so unbelief puts us in spiritual danger. The father continues, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Please help me overcome my unbelief. And do you see what's happened there? There was a swap. There was a trade. um, And what's happened is Jesus has revealed this man's unbelief. And as that deeply evil thing manifested itself, that is the father's unbelief, as that unbelief manifested itself, Jesus offers him a replacement. Jesus offers him something different. He says, everything is possible for one who believes. And the man takes it. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah! I'll take that swap. You take my unbelief, and I'll take your belief. Back of the century. I do believe Please help me with my unbelief. Please take it. The man has in the presence of God confessed and repented of his unbelief. He's accepted Christ's judgment. He has acknowledged his utter helplessness in this matter and he has put his faith in Jesus as the one who can help him. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we put our faith in Jesus as the one who can help us? Well, we're instantly God's friend. Instantly we're justified. By grace, instantly we're forgiven and set free. Well, Jesus leads the witness so as to close a legal loophole. The disciples could not drive out the demon because it had a legal right to stay there and it knew it. The father had made some kind of decision years ago that gave the spirit a legal right of entry and it wasn't going anywhere. We don't know what that decision was. We don't need to know what that decision was. But it was a decision made not to believe God about something. Um, It was unbelief. Perhaps he (laughs) prayed to another God or dedicated his child to another God. Um, It may not even have been the father. It might have been the grandparents. But the father now is in the position of spiritual authority over his child. He's in a place to do something about this, and he does. And as the man confesses his unbelief and renounces unbelief, the legal loophole is closed. The spirit has no authority to stay. It must go, and it goes. That's great, you might be asking, but how is this prayer? Well, it's prayer because Jesus is God with us. This kind can come out only by prayer. Well, okay, prayer must have happened. Actually, we, heard, we saw it. We heard it. Yep, we watched prayer. We watched it unfold. Um, deliverance ministry always requires prayer, uh, talking to Jesus. And it often requires the kind of prayer seen here, talking to Jesus about what legal rights might be giving the Spirit the power to stay, even when we're telling it to go in Jesus' name. And in such ministry, the Holy Spirit always speaks and shows the team, usually by way of uh, a compassionate revelation to the person being prayed for, uh, the Holy Spirit shows them something they need to repent of and renounce. And the Holy Spirit always gives them something else to hold on to, the truth. Uh, it, it, It might be that they have to renounce an historic association with the occult, Or maybe there's unforgiveness. The Holy Spirit leads them through that. Uh, The team does as it's led by the Spirit. The legal loophole is closed. The Spirit goes quietly because it has to in Jesus' name. It's called deliverance ministry, but it's actually just discipleship because really what is happening as we've seen in today's text, is it's just teaching people to believe what God has to say in his word. It's discipleship. It's called deliverance ministry, but basically it's just copying Jesus. And copying Jesus is called discipleship. Well, let's round things up. What does this miracle tell us about Jesus? Uh, We've already answered that. Jesus is a sinless human being. Jesus is God with us. What does this miracle tell us about what Jesus came to do? Well, in the beginning, we swapped the authority that God had given us over the spiritual realms for a piece of fruit. We thought it was a bargain at the time, but actually it was stupid, stupid, stupid. It was unbelief. Jesus comes to make another swap possible, even though he's sinless. Well, actually, because he's sinless, Jesus dies on the cross in our place. If he wasn't sinless, he'd be dying there for his own sins. He can only offer himself on our behalf if he's sinless and he is sinless. As our sinless sacrifice, he dies on the cross in our place, the punishment for our unbelief. And kind of like the sun in today's text, Jesus became dead and then fully alive again to definitely and finally break the power of Satan. If we are prepared to let go of our unbelief, to give it to to Jesus and to receive Jesus, then we share with Jesus his righteousness, that is, his standing before God, his authority and his eternal life this is just to point out the bleeding obvious this is the bargain of the century if 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 you haven't if you haven't got a piece of this deal then please i beg you stop worrying about bitcoin and buy in here before the day closes do this swap what does this miracle tell us about who we are well, returning to that fictional uh, television program I mentioned at the start of this sermon, the parents would only have been making things vastly worth, worse by inviting in a clairvoyant. Uh, inviting in a clairvoyant is, an ad, is a radical act of unbelief. Whereas in actual fact, you know, if they were parents in the Lord, they'd know at once they didn't need to be frightened, nor the son. In Christ, they have the authority to tell that thing to go and to go straight away, and it will. Simple. In Christ, we regain the authority that we lost at the beginning. Authority over Satan and his minions. What does Jesus teach us? Everything is possible for one who believes. The believer shares in the sovereign rule of God. That's extraordinary. Don't take my word for it. Jesus has said it. But it does call for a radical act of belief. Here's my decision. Here's my response. I'm going to pray in front of you and then I'm going to invite those who'd like to join that prayer to pray it with me. I'll pray it first. Um, (laughs) Dear Jesus, as a decision of my will... I declare that I do believe. Please help me with my unbelief. I give it to you. And receive whatever you'd like to give me today. Dear Jesus, I do believe. Please help me with my unbelief. Amen.